Welcome to Project Alchemy, the podcast. I'm Kobe Sheehan, a high school senior in Austin, Texas. I believe a meaningful life is something that we all seek to find. To discover what this looks like, I've interviewed inspiring adults in my community, asking them to tell their story of what happened in between, meaning their transition from adolescence to adulthood. Each will reflect on the lessons they've learned, both from triumphs and failures, and ultimately attempt to share what they believe is a life well lived. Enjoy the show. After graduating from Brown University, Rufus Griscom started a number of his own companies, including Babel with his wife Elisa, and is now working on the Next Big Idea Club, which brings together the newest, most innovative books to which people can subscribe and receive. His TED Talk has received almost two and a half million views, and his blog post, Unsolicited Advice for My Three Sons, has blown up with thousands of likes. Rufus, you've been an entrepreneur for nearly your entire adult life, it seems, which I really think defines one way to carve your own path. So welcome to Project Alchemy. Thank you, Kobe. Great to be a part of it. So you've started a number of your own companies, and this isn't exactly a sure path to take. So coming out of high school and then college in Rhode Island, was this something that you always knew you wanted to do, or what did you think the future held for you? Yeah, really interesting question. I, um, you know, when I graduated from college in 1991, it was uh, we graduated into a recession, um, and uh, and in some ways, I think that was a, a fortunate. It was ironically, I think it was fortunate timing because we didn't feel the sort of overwhelming pressure to immediately be kind of achieving or you know uh, in conventional ways, um, and. Um, and I felt, you know, I ended up spending several years kind of, I used to joke, kind of underachieving. <laughs> you know, but there was a, a movie, there was a movie, called, you know, called Slacker that was just coming out at the time about like, you know, the the merits of kind of being a starving artist and, you know, sitting, you know, pouring coffee in a coffee shop and reading and writing and, you know, and just kind of exploring the world of ideas and not trying to you know, like notch a bunch of wins on the, on the board. Um, and so I'm, I'm really grateful that I had that time to, to kind of explore at the same time. I always did want to build companies and build things and, and write and create things. So, I mean, to, to me, the whole question is like, can you figure out how to do work that you find really, really interesting and joyful? And at the same time, you know, make enough money to do the things that you want to do in your life. Just, just the practical stuff, like having, you know, the stuff you need to, you know, if you want to travel or, uh, whatever you want to do. Right. Um, and, and it's, and I think, I, I think they're not, it's not an easy thing to do. I mean, it, I think it's tragically, I think it's a subset of, you know, I think most people don't love their job. Um, and so that's, you know, if you can figure out a path that, you know, to find a work that you love that's also remunerative. That's that's kind of like a really great. I mean, that that's all I can hope for for my kids and my nephews and you know. Yeah, it's a stuff. fine line to walk, I think. Um, and and yeah, like you said, uh, there's a lot of people who don't necessarily love what they do, but it provides them with uh, the comforts um, in a life that they want to live, right? And so, did you struggle with that? Well, you know, it's, it's funny. I was, so I, I ended up, um, in Little Rock, Arkansas, a year after I graduated from college. 
And as I joke, I was losing interest in my job. My first job was just miserable. Uh, I mean, it was interesting because it was a new challenge, but um, soul sucking. I, I, I found it to be like quite, you know, discouraging. And, and, uh, but so I was losing interest in my job and gaining interest in this girlfriend. And, uh, she was, and she was moving back to Little Rock, Arkansas, um, where she was getting a, um, uh, going to medical school. And so I basically picked up and moved to Little Rock, Arkansas, just kind of on a whim. And I ended up basically kind of writing, um, whimsical book reviews and essays for the local paper. I was the editor of the local alt weekly. Uh, uh, a section of it uh, and I ended up becoming managing editor of the local book publishing house after a couple of years but it was a really fun sort of random kind of exploratory time and I remember during that time thinking um, Kobe this is, this, is, this is kind of a funny moment I, I uh, my car was rear-ended and I, I didn't have any money you know most people don't have any money you know at right. college I was, I was quite broke like you know I was, if I had 500 bucks in the bank I was thrilled and, uh, and this guy rear-ended my car and I got, I paid $3,500 for this car. I'd saved up over the summer to buy this car. And I managed to get a check from his insurance company for $7,000. <laughs> and I remember holding this check up and I was like, $7,000. I've never seen this much money in my life. This is, I, I called it the reckless driver's creative stipend. Wow. And I was like, you know, now I, I could live for a year in Little Rock, Arkansas, $7,000. <laughs> right. Life, um, life had endless opportunities. But I remember thinking, like, I remember thinking maybe I could become so wise that I would not need to be conventionally successful. I could just work at the local post office, get to know everybody's names, meet all the neighbors, and just read and write and just have a lovely, kind of very quiet, unambitious, creative life. Um, and then I, you know, because I had friends, you know, you go to these schools and you have friends who were, you know, at McKinsey consulting and at Goldman Sachs and doing all these jobs. And you're like, what am I supposed to be doing? You know, why, why, why aren't I doing more with my life? Right. Um, but, but so I remember thinking like, yes, maybe in 20 years I could become wise enough to not feel like I have to be compete and be successful or somehow have, you know, attain some kind of status or whatever it is people want. And, um, and I, then I thought, yeah, but, but maybe I could be successful in 15 years and that would be easier than trying to become so wise that you don't have to be successful, <laughs> you know, okay. but, and that, um, but that's why when I decided just with the, um, you know, to start, try to build my own company. Um, and, uh, but, um, but it was, you know, it, it, for me, it was, a, it was a somewhat kind of whimsical, um, there's a lot of trial and error and experimentation, which of course in entrepreneurship is what you have to do. Yeah. And, and so was there sort of a, an aha moment where you realized that? And, and it sounds kind of like the opposite of what most people think having a midlife crisis, you know, they, they've tried to be successful and they kind of realize that, you know, maybe that's not what it's all about. Um, but it sounds like you almost realized the opposite that it was going to be pretty difficult. But so going into that, you, you started your own company. What exactly were you looking for? Well, I, I so, um, you know, I, I had come to, 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 to uh, give you the background of the narrative of, of, of my life at that time. I was, so I ended up the managing editor of the local book publishing house in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I then 
I then moved to New York City and got a job as a, as a book editor. Um, and so I was sort of on a path to be a, a book editor, which I loved. And it was, I loved, you know, reading and books and so on. Um, and, um, but I very quickly learned that, that um, most of book publishing, that my love of serious fiction was a liability and that I needed to either develop an affection for humorous cookbooks or find another profession because you know, <laughs> most of the books that sell are like very silly books, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so I was, you know, and, it, and, uh, and so then I basically decided I'd like to create my own publishing kind of thing. But um, I learned I learned through own trial and error that it's a mistake to uh, to assume that other people show your taste, right? I, I, I started a t-shirt company I was in Little Rock, Arkansas that had quotes on it like, um, tact, colon, the ability to describe people as they see themselves, which is an Abraham Lincoln quote, which is kind of amazing. But and I, I had this line drawing of Abe Lincoln, you know, but it's like ridiculous, like, who's going to buy that t-shirt, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I had another one that was quote from Cicero. He does not seem to me to be a free man who does not sometimes do nothing. That was sort of like okay, the slapper like underachieving, it. like, you know, b- before Christ, you know, philosophy. But, you know, but so, of course, I started this t-shirt company. I put ads in the back of magazines and, you know, I sold like 30, maybe 32 shirts, but the cost of all the execution, like, I, you know, I lost a thousand bucks or something. But in <laughs> oh, the, no. you know, it was like a little six month failed entrepreneurial effort. But I learned something really important, which was like, do not assume that just because I think something's really cool that other people are going to think it's cool. You know, yeah, I mean, sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. Unfortunately, but you have to, you kind of need to find the Venn diagram between things that you really love and are really passionate about and things that the rest of the world gives a darn about. You know, I mean, you can't, it, it, like, if you're just, uh, and there, that, those sweet spots exist, but, you, but it takes a bunch of trial and error. So when I went to start a, I basically wanted to start an online magazine. It was, I was, it was my first company, Nerf.com, was an online magazine about sex and culture. And, and, uh, and sort of, uh, there's a longer story there, but, um, it, it was actually meant to be, this is a little bit scandalous Kobe and the family, but it was basically like a next generation playboy. Um, but very, but more with like lots of kind of famous writers and photographers and stuff like that. Very cool. So continuing the, the um, book path. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but so, I was, so, so basically literary stuff was where my heart was in terms of interest, but I was also interested in the intersection of of kind of literary things and writing and technology and how it's changing the world. And, and I also wanted it to be economically successful. I wanted it to, I wanted to do something at scale that would touch millions of people if possible, you know? And so I thought, well, uh, I've got to pick a subject that a lot of people are interested in. And I thought, you know, a lot of people are interested in sex, you know, That's right. <laughs> a lot of people seem to be interested in it. So I, was, so I thought, you know what, I'm going to, uh, you know, create this effectively like a, a kind of literary artsy highbrow, you know, magazine, but very, but it was, it was super interesting. And, um, and we, and we had, you know, so in our first year, very quickly, we got a fair amount of press. This was in 1997. And we had, you know, um, we pretty quickly grew to about a million, you know, readers a month and then maybe just three or 4 million. And then we later spun off an online dating technology company. But what happens is, is at the neuro, Personals became a thing. It was a very, it was a very kind of smart, artsy kind of online dating platform in the late '90s, early uh, mid 2000s. And um, but it's uh, but then what happens is 
you know, you start a company, if, if the company you start fails, like my t-shirt company, that's very liberating and empowering to some degree. Like, like starting companies that fail is not such a bad thing if you're careful about it because you learn something, you know, from the experience and then you're free after it fails. Yeah, you don't have to worry about <laughs> you're, it anymore. You're liberated. If you start a company that's wildly successful, that's also liberating because you can hire people to run it and, or you can, you know, you have a lot of options. If you start a company that's moderately successful, that can be imprisoning. I mean, that can be, a, 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 or, or, or that can end up being a very large commitment because, you know, it, it takes a lot of work to figure it out. And, and probably most companies um, end up in that tweener kind of zone of being neither a runaway success nor a total failure. Um, and that's where you need a lot of, you know, persistence and drive to sort of soldier through those periods of time. Um, yeah. And was that the case for you? Yeah. And so we had, you know, so we had a lot of, uh, I mean, it was incredibly fun. Um, it was, uh, it was really, really interesting and always changing. And, and, it, and it still is. I mean, I'm, I'm now, you know, uh, on company number four, 20, 20 years later. And it's still, it's still, you know, surprising and new and fun. And it's, it's less intimidating now because I, I had, you know, was fortunate to have uh, one or two of the companies work out, you know. But, um, but basically, I, I totally encourage entrepreneurship. But it's definitely for people who, you know, you, you have to really want, you have to love what you're doing. Because if you don't love it, you won't have the energy to soldier through the hard part. Was there ever any doubt in your mind that, man, maybe this isn't uh, going to work out and maybe I should, I should get a, a job and, and have a steady salary? With Nerve.com, and I did, at that time I had been, I worked as a book editor and, uh, and in some, a couple other jobs for a total of probably five years. And I also spent a year as a ski bum in Colorado. So I'd, you know, I, I had sampled some different, uh, I'd had a couple sort of almost real jobs. Okay. <laughs> you know, and, and, and were you doing those and, at the same time? Well, yeah. What, so when I started, actually the first thing I did, so, so here, here, here's my like, you know, Rufus is three steps starting a business. The first thing is, you know, to come up with an idea that you love, that you believe is in this nice intersection, the Venn diagram between something that you are really passionate about and something that a lot of other people actually want <laughs> you know, and are willing to pay for it. Too, or, or there's some economic model that will support it. And that's, you know, so, so there's a gestation period. And I think, you know, it often takes a year or two years to, you know, to work through these ideas and figure it out. Step number two for me was to, was to talk about this idea then in the presence of rich people uh, who might give me money to start it. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. I was like, well, I'm just going to, I got to find some rich people. I just got to talk really enthusiastically about this idea. And eventually one of these, people will give me some money, you know, an investment to start. And so I, Surely. I it just took about nine, I, mean, I spent about a year developing the idea and bouncing it off people. And I finally, and the only rich people I could find were some high school friends who happened to have, you know, been lucky. And, and, uh, and I, you know, and so I raised a hundred thousand uh, dollars from two high school friends. Wow. Uh, and they ended up, do, they ended up doing very well. And then subsequently we, you know, raise more money in. But in terms of the transition, though, I think, I mean, to me, one of the biggest things that uh, to keep in mind is um, for, for people going to college and, and, you know, thinking about their careers, 
is that I think in two, you know, at this point in history, like the idea of having one career to me is super outdated. You know, like I think you can have, you can have five careers, you know, I mean, you can do, um, I mean, I think we used to live in a world where you had to decide, like, I'm going to be a dentist. Am I going to be you know, a dentist or a veterinarian or, a, you know, or a football coach? And, and you feel pressure to decide what it is because that's supposed to affect your major and what you're studying, right? My kind of two cents is that people shouldn't feel pressure to know what they're going to do because, uh, and, and I think it's better to think of it as kind of like, you know, um, in terms of phases that you're going to have a sequence of careers, ideally, um, you know, but you can do a bunch of different things in your life. And really the first question is, what am I going to do first? And, uh, and, and, and I think experimentation and play and joy is critical. Like, cause if you don't, if you don't find work that you love, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, I, I mean, there are a lot of, uh, this is not maybe encouraging information, but in my experience, there are a lot of people like I'm 51 years old. And um, I think there are a lot of people in their 40s and 50s who find themselves doing work they don't love because they need to pay the mortgage and all that stuff. And I, I, I think that that's not that's not necessary. And I think it's worth it's worth exploring a huge host of possibilities. And it's also an incredible time to build businesses and build, you know, and innovate. And I think by the time in another 10 or 15, 20 years, it's going to be easier to build businesses than it is today. And it's much easier than today than it was 20 years ago. I completely agree with you. And and that's kind of what these podcasts are about because it's, it is harder. I mean, once you're older and, and especially if you have a family and kids, um, it's, it's, it's harder to, to, you know, diverge from that, that path. Um, but us as, as 20 something year olds or about to go into college, uh, I think it's important to do it right the first time. Um, and so we don't end up in, at a place where we're just going through the motions, uh, did you always kind of realize that? Was there ever a point where uh, you thought that, you know, you're just going along with something um, uh, and you kind of realized that this wasn't what you actually enjoyed? Yeah. So my first job out of college was I was working for this very odd company that was building a kind of construction equipment that was sold mostly overseas. And, um, and it was just really soul-fucking. It was just so boring. <laughs> so, and it, I mean, it, there were interesting parts of it, right? I mean, moments to it. But I think that, I think for a lot of people, if you have a first job out of college, it's like working for a big company or a very conventional yeah. company. It can be, you know, the world's been organized around your learning and your development and your, you know, and all of a sudden you arrive at, you show up for your first day at work and like the whole world of that workplace is organized around the company making money. You know, right. and it's, which, you know, I mean, now there's some, there are more and more interesting companies, right? I think they're all, I happen to love digital companies and internet related, you know, companies. And so I, I do think there's lots of companies you can find that would be quite interesting out of the gate, but it, yeah, but I was quite despondent. I mean, I was, I was definitely like, I, I used to spend a lot of the time during the workday, like writing letters to friends and, I mean, I think I was a relatively good employee. I tried to do my work, you know, but, but I was, I was not in it at all. And it was, it was, it was depressing, honestly. Um, yeah, just my, you asked, yeah, I mean, it just, it was just, I mean, just the percentage of the work that was actually creatively challenging was like 
you know, 5%, you know, and then 95% was just sort of pushing paper and, you know, and I think hopefully over time that, you know, we'll all have, be able to do more creative work because the, you know, artificial intelligence and robots will take care of the boring stuff, but there's still a lot of, a lot of boring stuff that has to get done. I like the word you use, soul sucking. I I think it, (laughs) it actually is pretty descriptive of what's going on. Well, and, and what's interesting is if you go on to build your own company, the problems you have as an entrepreneur building your own company are the exact opposite of the problems you have when you're working for somebody else. So when you're working for somebody else, yeah, when you're working for somebody else, everybody spends all this time complaining about like, oh, my boss is, you know, annoying or my coworker or because there are all these things that are out of your control. And so there's a te- people have a tendency to sort of, you know, blame others when they're, when they're not in control, I think. Yeah. The, the when you start your own company, like every problem you have is your fault, right? right. <laughs> like if, it, if a member of the team is not doing a good job, well, at the end of the day, I hired the person, so it's my fault. So you own every single little problem, and, and it can be, you know, it's a in the first. I think you'd asked earlier, Kobe, if we had any hard time. Um, you know, like we were constantly running out of money and trying to needing to either raise money or find it, you know, build a revenue stream. And this was early, early internet. It was 1997, 1998, 1999. There was no online advertising market. We had, you know, we had like 2 million people coming to our website every month, but we couldn't figure out how to turn that into real, into revenue. You know, there was no, no ad market. Um, we, um, we did a television show with HBO. We published books with Random House and other companies. And uh, eventually it, um, some com- uh, the media companies overseas paid us for the right to translate our content into other languages. But despite all these, the stuff we were doing, we, we still weren't generating enough revenue to pay the rent, you know, to keep the lights on. But we had moments, you know, so we'd raise money, we'd, and then we'd run out. And we had moments where I had to, you know, tell the team, like, I'm sorry, but we can't make payroll. Like, we don't have, you know, within two weeks, we'll be able to pay you again. And I, I, sometimes I'd go like two or three months without pay and with like in credit card debt. And, you know, so it's, I mean, it, it definitely has the potential to be pretty harrowing. I mean, when things go wrong and it's your business, the consequences are dramatically higher. Like the, the problem with working for other people is that it, it can be boring, you know, <laughs> I mean, soul sucking and boring. The problem with starting your own business is that it's, when things go wrong, it's just cataclysmic, like totally, and, you know, uh, yeah, threatens your, you. your ability to do anything. Yeah. But it's, but at the same time, the stakes are high and it's invigorating. It's like, you know, it's, uh, so I, I, I personally, I personally love it. And if you do it for more than a certain amount of time, you render yourself unemployable. Like currently, like, you know, I, you get so used to working for yourself that you can't, you know, um, can't go back, but it, but it's, it's, um, as you can tell, Kobe, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big evangelist for, um, entrepreneurship how do you feel about the quote hope is not a strategy do you think this is accurate interesting yeah hope is not a strategy i i think that that optimism is is a is a is somewhat of a strategy because we know that like i i suffer from a delusion known as optimism which causes me to think that the world is more favorable circumstances are more favorable than they are um a lot of us do, uh, you know, we know that statistically like optimists are, are you know, uh, 
are more successful over time. And I think it's, it, I think that you tend to bend the world a little bit in your favor when you, you know, have a, uh, an optimistic outlook, I think, because, you know, but it has to be paired with, uh, you know, creativity and speed in testing new solutions to problems. You know, like you have to, you know, you have to try a lot of things. Um, Right. So, it's not um, enough to, to be optimistic on its own. Yeah, optimism, yeah, yeah. I mean, hope, hope on its own is definitely not going to get you anywhere. Um, but I think, I think, you know, yeah, I, I guess hope, hope combined with experimentation and, and perseverance, I think, is a uh, is pretty good mix. As you get older, this has been, seemed to be the case for me. Uh, I, I would think it applies to most people. It feels like we only gain more responsibilities. Uh, there's more things on our plate, um, but with the same amount of time. And time is one thing that is really equal for all of us. We all get the same amount of time in a day. Um, so, so for you, when there's so many things to get done uh, and people and things to invest your time in, how do you manage this? How, how do you take a step back and, and realize what it is that is really important? Yeah, we well, know you. It's a, it's a great question because I think, I, I think you've identified a... Um, like an important um, fact, which is that as you get older, typically in our American society, your um, you know time becomes becomes your most constrained resource, right? I mean, like as you're you know when you're in college and and just out of college, you have loads of time, um, but not a lot in the way of resources or, or money or assets. Typically, you know, over the next several decades you're going to become much more time constrained and, uh, but have more assets and maybe flexibility in terms of how you solve problems and hire people to help you do things and all that. So um, definitely time management is, is, uh, well, I, I think priorities is, is what comes to mind because people often say, no, I don't have time for that, but, but it's almost never true. Probably do have time yeah. for it. Um, but just, right. I just haven't given it the priority. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, you can you can become more efficient in almost every part of your life except for interfacing with other humans. You know, and I think this is a mistake a lot of people make is that you always want to, I think, be generous with time allocation for interacting with people you care about and with, and also interacting with people that, like business is effectively, you know, persuading people to do things is like half of business, you know, but hopefully to do persuading people to do things that are good for them and good for everybody, you know? Um, but it's, uh, so I think, I think one trick is to manage to become more and more efficient with your time. Um, in terms of to do all the practical things you have to do without becoming too time constrained and inhibited around the way you interact with people, you know, cause a lot, a lot of people, but you're, you're juggling and it's easy to sort of not enjoy your, all, all your human interfaces as much as you could. Uh, I'll give you one example, um, which is when I, so I drop my kids off at school in the morning, uh, which I love to do. I make them breakfast, drop them off at school. And then, um, and then I run back from their school while listening to the New York Times daily podcast. And that way I'm, I'm running, you know, two miles, I'm getting my morning workout, I'm getting the news and I'm transporting myself home all in 22 minutes. You know, so it's that kind of like, yeah, I mean, that, <laughs> like everybody, once you have, particularly when you have kids, right? But I think, um, 
I think it's essential to have two gears, right? To have the gear, the efficiency gear, and then shut that down and allow yourself to, you know, joy interacting with people and, and, and finding, you know, joy and, and spontaneity and things, you know, cause it's, it's, um, I think actually the, the intersection of fun, you know, of things that light you up and you, and you find to be really fun and gratifying and things that solve problems for society. Um, you know, it's a great, like if you can find those, those, um, those areas to, um, as an entrepreneur, right. So basically, you know, um, I mean, I, I think it is possible to live your life such that you're like, it's, it's, uh, new and surprising and creative. And, um, this, this, by the way, Kobe, I will tell you that for me, my fifties so far is my favorite decade and they've all been great decades, but this is like, just, just to let you know, there's some great stuff to look forward to. <laughs> wow. So it's getting better. That's good to hear. Yeah. I mean, it's, I would say it took me at least 10 years after college to rebuild a community that was as kind of, um, interesting and, 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 um, and joyful as my college community. So that, I, I do think that's something that one has to kind of expect or, uh, you know, plan for a little bit is that I think, I think community drives your happiness more than anything else. And when you get out of college, you have to find, you have to kind of build community and that's a process. So looking back, are there any specific moments or, or, or what do you think brings you fulfillment? And, and now, too, things or moments that, that really bring you fulfillment, and, and how do you know? Well, I think, I think there, for me, there are a few categories. Right? What, one category of, of the most fulfilling experiences in life, right? What, one category is getting together with a team of people and building something that makes other people happy. You know, and so, like, the, the simplest form of that would be, like, if you think of, like, barn raising in the old days, like, you, you know, a bunch of families would get together to build a barn for one family, you know, and probably it would take, I don't know, two weeks or whatever it would take. And they'd, you know, they'd all get together, build this barn, and then they'd drink a lot of hard cider and dance around around a fire or something. You know? <laughs> or, or, I mean, you know, 10,000 years ago, people helped each other build houses and celebrated. And, you know, so, but it's a very fundamental human thing, which is like the pleasure of like solving problems together in a team of people and building something that you can kind of feel or touch in some fashion and enjoy. And then, and then to see other people get pleasure from it. Um, I think that's one of the core pleasures of, in life. Um, and, um, you know, and the challenge and the, and the strategizing and, and the community interaction all wrapped together is kind of what makes that so great. Uh, for me, another one is just sort of, um, creative, um, you know, like I, I just, I actually am just driving back from a retreat with three of my old high school friends, and the four of us just spent three days together, um, listening to music, um, sharing music that people had written, um, talking about you know ideas for books that, that we wanted to write, um, and I think I think just you know you know consuming, experiencing you know whether it's music or cinema or other you know creative things with people you care about and then especially creating art or, you know, some kind of cultural product is, is to me like the, uh, the second category of like deeply fulfilling, beautiful, you know, experience. 
Yeah, I really like um, that. And having people to share it with. Yeah, and I think final category, I would say, which kind of subsumes all the other categories, is the community is everything, you know, philosophy of happiness, which is that I think that actually, like, if you define community broadly, right, to include family, you know, friends, relatives, business partners, um, that I think really all of our joy comes from, from you know, community interaction. And I think, I think the idea that any of us succeeds as an individual alone is completely wrong. Like I, I, I think basically all success is team success, right? In the sense that when you, if you're successful in business, it's because you, along with another a team of people, you know, created the right chemistry to, to make something happen. Even when you write a book or write a song, there, there are a lot of other people who helped you do that. And um, I think culturally, we're way too focused on the idea of individual achievement, which is really a mirage. Like, I, I would make the case that all achievement is that um, life is a team sport, basically, is the argument. And, um, and, and the joy, and definitely the experiencing of joy and fulfillment is a team experience. Yeah, and, and um, you touched on that earlier. I think, I think it's the same for, for, for happiness. You said that making other people happy, and it's kind of ironic because all of us want that. We all want to be happy. We're all striving for it, um, but I think we get so caught up in, in achieving that through you know, accomplishing things when making other people happy is, is one of the biggest things that makes ourselves happy. Yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, I think it's, you know, I remember hearing somebody say that, um, that in, they were giving like business advice and they said, um, helping everybody around you be successful may not be the fastest way to get to the top in business, but it never fails. Uh, and actually it's one of the things I love so much about business is that it's a if you're interested in people, which we all are, of course, with, you know, the social animal, um, the, uh, it's a fascinating context in which to study how people can most successfully interact. Um, and, uh, and, and really a lot of the, a lot of things I've learned from business dynamics apply to life, apply to, you know, marriage and family and friends. And the next topic is, uh, failure. Well, the question really is, are there failures that you look back at and, and actually wish that they hadn't happened? That's a great question. Um, that's a really, really good question. You know, I mean, there's a line that, like, you know, failure is it's just a data point. You know, um, it, it's, uh, you know, it, where there's the great Thomas Edison line. Um, I haven't failed. I'm just, I've just found 10,000 approaches that don't work. so so it's like you know i mean i mean failure is a data point that you're getting back from the world that's saying that like this approach that you took in this circumstance didn't work right so it it might be like failure in a relationship like your girlfriend dumps you okay well i just got back some really useful data like either this was the wrong type of person for me or something about my behavior caused her not to want to be with me you know but it's it's a data point and it's and, and, and so i think if you just I think that being very attentive to the learning process in life is that basically the, the more you experiment and the faster you learn, you know, the, the easier it is to navigate towards what you're trying to do. You know, so, yeah. um, 
it's obviously hard not to take failure personally, right? Um, and I used to, I remember the first time somebody who worked for me quit, but, you know, decided to leave the company. I was heartbroken. I thought, what have I done wrong? You know, we had, like in our first two years, nobody had ever wanted to leave, you know. Wow. And somebody was like, hey, Rufus, I'm getting another job. I'm, you know, I'm, gonna put, I'm putting in my two-week notice. And I was just devastated. I thought, what have I done wrong that would cause somebody not to want to work at this company, you know. And, um, and, and now, years later, I realized, like, that was such a silly outlook. Just often it's failure because we, we tell ourselves that it's failure. You know? Yeah, yeah. So who gets to define that? Yeah, if exactly. We, um, so you, you said that only one of the one of the three companies was at least financially successful. Um, and would you say that the same applies to how it, it impacted you? Was that the most successful in terms of fulfillment and and you know? beneficial for you a growing period for you because it was financially successful or were they all pretty impactful in that way you know they, they were all really gratifying um even the t-shirt company that failed and lost a thousand dollars but i would say that you know so um i think one thing you may be hinting at is the question of like hey did making money how much of an effect did that have on your overall gratification um, versus not? I, I mean, you know, I think something that's, um, uh, I mean, it, it, it's very gratifying to, to actually make, I was very happy to make the our investors money because I'd spent so many years feeling horrible that I wasn't making money for the investors who'd bet, who'd bet on my companies. And so it was very gratifying to see other people make money, you know. Um, I, I would also say that, um, when you're young, poverty equals freedom to some degree, right? Like one of your great assets in your twenties and even into your thirties is that is the, the lack of need for money is actually incredibly liberating and empowering, right? Like you could, I spent a summer in Aspen, Colorado, like living in a tent, you know, I, I would <laughs> I, I'd deliver Domino's pizza one day a week. I'd make 90 bucks and I could live on it for a week, you know? So I had, I was only working one day a week. I mean, you can live, um, you have a huge amount of freedom when you're young and you don't have like financial responsibilities. So, um, I think when you're young, you know, poverty equals freedom to some degree, but once you have children, money equals freedom to some degree in terms of, I think a, a very valid question to ask yourself when you're in college or going into college and thinking about your career is should I actually intentionally try to make a bunch of money or not? You know, I, I mean, I think that's a very valid question because everybody says money doesn't make you happy. Um, it's not what you should strive for. But at the same time, you kind of, as a culture, clearly American society is a culture that values money, right? So it, I, I think there's kind of mixed messaging in our culture. Right. I, I, I think we're given both sides to that. Um, and I, I, I like your observation that Poverty is kind of freedom when you're young, but I don't think most people realize that. And I, I think, I think, like you said, I mean, there's also a view towards money as, as like, yeah, having more money doesn't make you happier, but at the same time, it's kind of necessary. Um, and so I, I think kind of realizing that both of those are applicable and perhaps, and, and when you're young, realizing that money isn't something you need immediately, 
because I think a lot of people are, are striving for money, not for themselves, but, but to kind of prove something or, or fulfill society's expectations. Yeah. Well, the, well, the, the, in order, for instance, to experiment with starting companies, right. Um, or entrepreneurship, it helps a lot to be able to pay, to live on next to nothing. You know, like if you already have kids and a house with a mortgage, it's very difficult to be able to take the risk that you can take in your twenties and maybe into your thirties. Um, you know, because you don't need to, you don't need much money to survive. You can survive on very, very little. And so that enables you to take a lot of risks that otherwise you couldn't take. Right. Um, you know, when you're older, if you do have children and a mortgage house and a mortgage, then you need to have either figured out a way to make money to have the freedom that go and, I mean, like, for instance, if you want to travel, if you want to see the world, you know, you can travel in your 20s on peanuts, you know, yeah, uh, and, couch and, stay in, in, and, and couch surf and stay in youth hostels. And, you know, you can travel for very, very little money when you're younger. Once you have kids, if you're, it, it, it's a wildly expensive proposition. So I think just understanding that in advance is very useful, you know, that, that you can really just, there's nothing wrong with enjoying a kind of liberated you know, um, very low budget kind of lifestyle in your twenties. I mean, and, and not, and not feel pressure around that. I mean, I think it's a great, it's one of the gifts of that stage of life. But I also think that it's bad advice. To, I mean, I think some of the advice that like money doesn't matter is, is also bad advice, right? Because a lot of the things that you love, you know, can be beautiful hobbies in your life. But I think that being somewhat strategic and tactical about deciding, like there's no pressure to make money in my opinion, in your twenties, but I think there is, I think it, it is smart to figure out how to, uh, make some money by your thirties or forties. I, I think it's worth systematically figuring out, like, how can I make a few million dollars? Yeah, I think I, I agree with you in that. I think money, the things money brings are, are good and beneficial. Um, but the problem is when people start wanting to make money because of what other people will think if they don't. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And it's a byproduct of, um, you know, I mean, I think to me, the trick is to do things you're passionate about and you really care about and figure out, you know, and, and there's usually a way to, to do those things that you, that you love and you care about, um, that also delivers value for a lot of people and consequently makes you money, <laughs> you know? Um, right. and, uh, it's, it's, um, it's a really interesting challenge to kind of figure that out. I would say in summary that in my opinion, our society simultaneously um, overvalues the importance of money and undervalues it, right? Like when we tell people money doesn't make people happy, well, that's not totally true. Like it, it, it definitely helps. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but particularly if it's applied to the things, if you apply it to those most enriching human experiences we talked about earlier, right? I mean, if, if you apply resources towards building community, towards, having great creative experiences towards helping up, helping yourself and other people build things that matter, you know, then, then it's a, it's an accelerator of, of purpose and joy. All right. We're, we are almost out of time. We're wrapping up, but, but to end, um, if there are three things you could say to your 20 year old self or any 20 year old for that matter, what would they be? Okay. Um, my number one tip is 
is that mentors are much more accessible than you think they are. So in other words, like if there's some very impressive person that you've read about in a magazine or online somewhere, um, you know, uh, just reaching out to them, uh, you'd be surprised how accessible people are because, um, because my younger self is not available to give advice to, I find it very therapeutic to talk to people, you know, and <laughs> to share advice. And, uh, and everybody wants to share what they've learned, you know? I mean, hopefully you're finding that in this podcast, right? Like, whatever people think they've learned, people want to share it. And even people in positions of power. Um, so I think if you're very kind of bold in reaching out to people who can help you, early in your career um, or people you find interesting that that will pay a lot of dividends and just, you know, I mean, not everybody's going to respond to you, but you can, if you just told email people or tweet at them or whatever, you know, or, or wait to meet them when, a, when they're giving a speech, you can get access to a lot of people. I mean, I, for instance, like I, I ended up getting a lot, there a lot of very powerful, influential people who ended up investing in my companies. And I just wrote them letters, you know, <laughs> I just phone called them. Yeah. And I, I got a lot of like Pulitzer Prize winning famous writers to write for me just because I wrote them, you know, really nice emails. And, uh, you know, so you can, the world is available to you would be the point. Yeah, I, um, I like that. And there's not much downside. Yeah, exactly. Second piece of advice um, would be to, to give yourself permission to play in all aspects of life. You know, that, that like business and career related subjects, uh, that a lot of the, a lot of innovation comes out of play, you know, with um, the, the just sort of bouncing ideas, um, you know, off of people who you admire uh, and, uh, and just a lot of experimentation. I think speed of experimentation is, you know, if you want to live a kind of innovative, creative, successful life, you've got to, you know, uh, that, um, speed of experimentation and freedom to do a lot of highly varied and different types of experimentation is, I think the biggest driver of innovation. I mean, you know, nine out of 10 things will not be successful. It won't, won't be the right thing, but the fact that you tested them will, will get you to the 10th, you know, one that really, that really works right. for you. I like that. Um, I've, I've heard that too. I've, that that the the one the drive to have fun has actually led to some of the most creative uh, and amazing inventions. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And then the last one, I I guess I would say number three is that life is a team sport. You know, which I said earlier. But um, you know that if you think of if you reframe your idea of success as uh, uh, or achievement as something that you're always going to do with a team of other people. The first, the first question is, is, um, is how can I surround myself with the, the, the best teammates for me? You know, people who inspire me, make me want to, you know, be better or, or, or enhance my thinking or are just joyful to be around. You know, if you surround yourself with the right people and then accept that life is a team sport and everything you accomplish is going to be accomplished with those the people around you um it's everything's a lot easier and a lot more fun wow well thank you for sharing i uh i i loved it i think it's it's you know it's been said that, that 
all good advice has already been said and given, but uh, but I think these podcasts are are trying to really just bundle up as much of it as I can uh, and, and share it. So so thank you for for contributing. Thank you, Toby. I I really enjoyed the conversation. So so fun. Uh-huh.